Story number one. Pretty little Deathworlders. What we're fighting for. Written by Gifted Earth. Amanda Brewer, the widowed mother of Dr. Steve Brewer, had been waiting anxiously for the doctor's arrival. Her son was a hero, according to what she'd been told, but he might also be doomed to die very soon. There was talk of him receiving the Order of Australia, or even the stellar commendation second class. This was not much of a comfort to poor Amanda. The door swung open and the doctor came in. She was human, since a human was the best equipped to treat the critically injured human. Sorry to keep you waiting, Mrs. Brewer, the doctor said. I have both good news and bad news. Which would you like first? The good, Amanda said without a hesitation. I need to hear it. The doctor nodded sympathetically and sat down at the desk across from Amanda. The good news that your son will still live, barring any freak complications. The bad news is that between the plasma bolt and the mild exposure to amplified toxins, he's suffered a fair amount of nerve damage. There was also the generalized damage of his internal organs, which could cause digestive and metabolic issues. Amanda smiled. But he's going to live. Yes, I think it'll take a long time for him to recover. But he will live. Amanda's smile widened, and she broke down in tears. What? In all mother gods are we looking at here? Zaquia, the foremost Zelfardi neuroscientist, was staring at the last brain scans in a state in disbelief. There were not many Zelfardi neuroscientists. The topic was a little bit taboo. An alien brain, answered Kavalt Nerazaka, the foremost Aridrakian neuroscientist. I have to agree that something is wrong with it, though. I know what's wrong with it, Silsukwa said. They pointed at a particular spot near the scan. Look, that's not natural. It can't be. Someone has made a clean cut through some nerves. Murakai, who was not a neuroscientist, but did have a first leaf experience with the last, ruffled her petals in agreement. That section is next to what it looks like strange too, she said. It almost looks like a tumor, but it's been artificially integrated with the rest of the brain. So Zequia crossed the lower arms in annoyance. It almost reminds me of what they did to the poor assassin, you know, cutting the brain connections to generate desired behavior. What can they definitely conclude from this, Murakai said, is that the last creatures are very fond of brain surgery, which makes it a bit difficult to get a psychological profile on the species based on this one brain. Nazaraka hissed and laughed. Yeah, he said, it's not a good idea to try neuroprofiling one intact brain scan, let alone this. But we've got to try. At the very least, we need to place the last one on aggression, cooperation, and flexibility scales. Murakai had a funny feeling that the first of those scales was about to see a new record. The Lanalalia system was the sovereign territory of the Doozy. It had one inhabited planet, which was known as Blossom's Apex. The name was chosen because it sounds pretty. Blossom's Apex had two moons, both of which had tourist stations on them. There were many mining stations throughout the systems. All in all, it was a very peaceful place. The League had put some military outposts in the system, because the Doozy were hardly going to do that themselves. But that had never seen action. 
The first person in Lanalalia system to notice the problem was an amateur astronomer who just happened to have their telescope pointed right part of the sky when the stars went dark. A moment after that, a very sensor in the area of the system started blaring that something very, very big had just entered from dark space. Then they stopped responding because something had blown them up. This got the attention of the military sentries, who decided that it would probably be a good idea to get prepared for a fight. Since one was obviously coming, most of the other sensors in the system were moved to look at the big black spot that was drifting towards Blossom's apex. It was about the size of a small moon, fairly uniform spherical, with a moving at a steady one hundredth the speed of light. A second, more detailed set of scans revealed it wasn't alone. There were several much smaller bodies orbiting around it, presumably maintaining their orbits artificially. These were the, the process of releasing swarms of standard-sized ships. The small ships could move much, much faster than the big one. History would remember this as the Battle of Blossom's Apex. Out of respect for the soldiers, pilots, and officers who died in the attempts to stop the waves of destruction coming for their planet. In truth, it would probably be better remembered as the Massacre of Blossom's Apex. The swarm descended upon the system like locusts upon a vast stellar cornfield. They shot apart sentry stations and the first military responders. Their blasts tore apart mining and research hubs across the system, never bothering to communicate with their targets. All the while, a false moon and its attendants drifted ever closer to Blossom Apex itself. Of course, a war of annihilation that takes place across an entire solar system is a lengthy procedure. The battle, Massacre, was not a constant blaze of battle, but instead a bright pinprick of death scattered in intervals across the blackness of interplanetary space. This gave the administrators of Blossom's Apex time to react. They ordered citizens and tourists alike to security bunkers and sent off distress messages across the space to nearby systems, begging for assistance. As civilians rushed at what they had hoped for safety, the forces of the Stellar League clashed with those of the last. It was not a very long clash. This isn't to say that the Stellar League's forces went down without a fight. It would later be said that every single crew member of the board these ships had individual story of heroism attached to their deaths. Not one went down without at least damaging a lost ship, and more than a few managed to kill. Unfortunately, they were outnumbered, outgunned, and simply outmatched. The last pause then, the damaged ships went back to their stations for repairs, there was a pause of about a day. It wasn't a necessary pause in the slightest. During the pause, the evacuation order was given to Blossom's apex. Reinforcements were coming, but they were probably not going to help much. Finally, the ships began to move once more, heading straight for the terror-struck planet. They embarked upon a strange facsimile of bombing runs, except that they didn't have bombs. They fired their plasma cannons upon the lust foliage of Blossom's apex and set the planet ablaze. Some targeted the evacuees, dooming millions by destroying the evacuation vessels. Others took the time to wipe out communications. Most just targeted the trees. 
The first part of Blossom's apex to react to the approach of the false moon was the oceans. Their tides warped and changed, adapting to the presence of a new gravitational attraction. Low-lying areas became flooded as the ship drew ever closer, slipping in between the planet and its natural satellites. Cracking a planet open wasn't impossible, just highly impractical. The energy needed would be absurd, and even for a ship like the one that loomed ominously in the sky. There were much simpler ways to kill a world. For instance, roasting them. The vast plates upon which this false moon moved apart, revealing a blinding light of its core. It was oddly beautiful, if horrifying. Then the light brightened, and brightened. And then the ship fired. With one shot, the false moon released enough energy to overheat and ignite nearly a quarter of the planet's forests. This was a major issue for the planet that was mostly forest. Heat spread, carbon dioxide was released in massive quantities, heating the world further, smothering it in soot and ash. Half a day later, the false moon fired a second shot. Some ships did escape. They made a beeline for the other side of the system forcing the engines to work at maximum capacity, desperately trying to flee the onslaught. Some of these were picked off by the stray lost ships, then escaped. Each carried millions of people in cramped, uncomfortable conditions, with barely enough resources to keep the number of them alive. The population of Blossom's Apex, including tourists, had been approximately 15 billion. Yamada felt sick. She wasn't the only one. Around the high senate hall, people of every representative species were reacting to the report given by one of the ten million survivors. Images of the massacre were being displaced on the high resolution on the large screens around the room. The hall had never been so quiet, so cold. Even Polaris had been stunned into silence. After many minutes of processing time, the silence was broken by Ambassador Yendanal. Why? The question hung heavy in the air. Why? he asked again. What was the purpose of this? The planet is now useless to anyone, at least until it cools down, and that could take decades. They got nothing out of killing all those people. They just... killed. For no reason. It seemed as if nobody had an answer. Yamada cleared her throat. Hatred, she said. That's why. A murmur of discussion went through the room. Yanadal looked up at Yamada with surprise. Hatred? But why the Baku do they hate us so much? Yamada shrugged. I can't answer that question without knowing more about them, but it is the only explanation that fits. To simply wipe out an entire planet like that requires an enormous expenditure of resources for very little gain. The only way that makes sense is if they hate the Stellar League so much that our destruction is a reward in and of itself. Another wave of murmured discussion. Walks with words stood to speak. I see your point, Ambassador Yamada, but it's just that incomprehensible to me. There must be something they want. Our deaths, Yamada replied bluntly. They want us all to burn. 
Between this and what they said during the giant eye incident, they made it very clear that they want us all dead and won't negotiate on the point at all. Well, if they won't negotiate, how do we deal with them? Walks with words shook his outer place in an emphasizing fashion. They are proud and hateful and clever. I doubt they will even surrender, stupid as that is, until every last one of them is dead. And they almost certainly have reinforcements out there in the galaxy somewhere. We fight off this lot, and more turn up later. Does that matter? Right now, we have to accept that we're in a state of total war. It is us, or them. Dal Premanar hovered upwards and landed on her booth. My apologies, Ambassador Yamada, but what is total war? Yamada winced. Um, well, a total war is one where the two parties involved put all available resources towards the war effort. They draft all eligible members of the population. They convert civilian factories into military ones. They ration food and supplies at home to support the forces elsewhere, and so on. Their militaries treat civilian infrastructure as viable targets, even hospitals and places of worship. They do this because they believe there is no other choice. If they lose the war, they lose absolutely everything. The ways of muttering that followed the statement were filled with an undisguised disgust for the concept. Um, said Yandanao, since the last of the targets us was intent to wipe out all of our peoples, we have to fight as fiercely as possible in order to survive. It was quite apparent that nobody present liked the idea. We need information, Dal Premanar said. We need to know what their capabilities really are. Where they're from, any weaknesses they might have. I think we'll also need to try and understand their psychology, if we can. They must have ship-to-ship communications. We need to listen in on those. Ambassador Cracklaw Jin also stood to speak. I think that this conversation better left for our militaries, for those of us who have them, anyway. I'd like to leave this high senate with one question that has been bothering me. Why the subterfuge? Why the assassinations? Why alter the poor Xiphod assassin? Why attack the giant's eye first? I suspect that answering these questions will explain an awful lot. Results on the last in, Quark said, walking into the lab with the data screen in the upper hands. Murukai looked up from a book. Well, they don't make sense. Cooperation score is about 3 out of 20, which implies they barely have the concept of pack group, let alone civilization. Flexibility isn't bad. They scored an 11. They can adapt. An aggression? Sazakwa looked her dead in the eyes. It's a freaking 19. Three whole points higher than humanity. What? Nizrakar sat up straight in his seat, tail twitching. How? Not that's wrong. That's gotta be wrong. Salzakwa handed the data to him. Muzukai walked over and took a look herself. There it was, clear as day. 3, 11, 19. A score that shouldn't be possible for a spacefaring race. A note at the side indicated that this was an average result of 50 cognitive simulations. Forget space, Nazrakar said. How did they ever develop tools? They should have torn each other apart the moment they realized that rocks could do more damage than fists. 
This one did have their brain altered, Murakai pointed out. It is possible that we're not seeing the last true scores there. Nizraka hissed. Even so, what was humanity's scores again? They're the only space-faring death worlders we have of the data. Seventeen, eight, and sixteen, Salsuqua replied. Extremely violent, extremely protective of their loved ones, extremely stubborn. Murakai remembered how Walker and Brewer had reacted to poor Kalvati's death. They had become borderline incoherent with rage, launching themselves into a glorified brawl with the monster that had already slaughtered dozens that day. Humans, it seemed, fought for what they loved. So, what were the last fighting for? End of story.